Welcome back, Warriors. Quay Ninda Luizzi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties, and land back to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about their experiences on the front lines of Indigenous resistance, resurgence, revitalization, and representation, then this is the podcast for you. And today's podcast is with an award-winning journalist and author who describes herself as not the average storyteller. So stay tuned. You do not want to miss this podcast. Welcome back. You are all in for an amazing podcast today. I'm literally still pinching myself wondering, is this really true? Is she really here? I have been dying to talk to her for so long. We have with us none other than award-winning author and journalist, commentator, public speaker, activist, everything you can imagine, Brandy Morin. She is just one of my favorite peeps in the world. Welcome to the Warrior Life Podcast, Brandy. Tanze, Pam, so good to see you. Taniki, thank you for having me. And I just have to comment that, um, you know, I first met you in 2014 when I was working with the Aboriginal People's uh, Television Network and I was fangirling over you. So... <laughs> So I, I've admired you long time as well. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, as usual, I have a thousand questions I want to ask you because I know some time ago I was on your podcast. I don't even remember how long ago it was. And I got a chance to talk to you, but you were asking me the questions and I had a million questions for you. So I've had to wait all this time to be able to ask you all these questions. But before I do that, protocol says that you uh, I need to offer you time to introduce yourself and your background the way you would like to introduce yourself yes so Tanze bonjour hello I am Brandy Morn I am Cree Iroquois French coming to you from Treaty 6 territories in the lands of my ancestors I am a member of the Michelle First Nation and yeah, I am a storyteller and a new author as of recently. That's so awesome for like a billion reasons. And don't let me forget to, to ask you about your uh, community too, because it's something that I actually did research on. And there's so many issues around Michelle First Nation. But before mm -hmm. that, your Twitter post says that you are not the average storyteller. So let's start with the background. Did you always want to be an author, a journalist, a storyteller since you were very little? Or is this something that just kind of came about as you grew up? Wow. So I, I did not plan this out. I mean, um, I had a really kind of rough go uh, growing up. So I um, grew up in and out of the uh, child welfare system and, you know, experienced a lot of different adversity. Um you know, 
I always loved to write. I always loved to read. Uh, but it wasn't uh, until I was 21 when I was actually living in a small town in southern Manitoba called Altona. And I just got this wild idea one day that I wanted to try to be a reporter. And um, I've always, you know, been strong willed and I, you know, and motivated despite all of these, you know, different struggles that I had been facing. And one day I approached the local uh, newspaper and uh, met with the editor and asked her, you know, if, if I could work there, if I could write. And she took me under her wing and I wrote on a part-time basis as a community reporter for about eight months. I was living there, a single mom, like of two young kids, like they were just babies at the time. And I loved, loved it. But I ended up having to move back to Alberta uh, and did not do journalism again for probably about eight or nine years. And um, I, w I ended up doing administrative work and becoming a legal assistant in between because back then there wasn't a whole lot of money available uh, in that kind of work, like in, in, in local journalism. But I was doing a lot of soul searching um, when I was about 29 years old and praying and um, just asking what it was uh, that I needed to be doing, searching for purpose. And one day, as I was praying, I got this thought that came to me, and it was a very specific thought. And this thought said, put together your resume and a cover letter and some samples of your work and bring it into the local uh, newspaper of my home communities, which was the Stony Plain Reporter, Spruce Grove Examiner. And at that time, that was something that was very intimidating to me because uh, it was my home community and they had a distribution of 50,000. And I thought, you know, that was a really big deal. Plus I was not formally trained. I did not have a degree as a journalist. I just really had that desire, that passion to tell stories. So I worked up the courage and I took that folder, walked in to the offices of the newspaper, again, asked to meet with the editor, presented, you know, my work and, and resume and cover letter. And I asked, do you happen to have uh, any, you know, positions available, you know, for a reporter, for a writer? And the editor looked at me and he said, hmm, your timing happens to be impeccable because right now we have a position open for a full-time staff reporter. Now you got to understand in these small communities, it wasn't all the time that these opportunities came up. So I did have to work uh, for that position. So I, they hired me on for a couple of weeks as a freelancer. I went through the formal application process and I was up against people that had journalism degrees and more experience, but I prayed and I felt like that was for me, that that was meant to be. And I was hired. So I hit the ground running and I learned everything as I went. And they were so good to me. I took every story um, with just excitement and care, like stories about grandma's baking pies and kids at school having book fairs and just learning as I went. And 
And that's how it all started for me. And then I eventually started telling uh, exclusively Indigenous stories, which led me on a path uh, to APTN, to the CBC Indigenous, to eventually doing freelances for some of the top media organizations in the world. That's phenomenal. Like literally phenomenal. You are like my dream come true. And I'll tell you why, because ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to be a news anchor and a journalist. So from the time I was in grade three, I had something called PAM news. And I used to record myself on a little tape recorder and I used to watch the news and report on it, report on what was on TV. And that was always my dream. But you know, like I I went through university and I didn't do journalism and I thought, oh, you know, you can't do that unless you have a journalism degree. And here you've shown you can do it by, by hard work, by passion, by, by praying on it, by working towards it. You literally from the ground up made your dreams come true and not just little tiny dreams. You are like this massive, well-known international journalist now. And it's just like, you are literally my dream come true. Like you must inspire so many young people, Brandy. Do you ever take a minute and sit back and go, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. Oh yes. Uh, All the time. And I'm grateful for that because I, Uh, I take everything in, you know, as a novelty, Um, you know, I'm traveling all over and uh, I'm in awe of everything they do and where I go, but just especially from where I've come from, um, because I had so many different struggles um, as a child. And then, um, you know, I am a survivor of missing and murdered and I shouldn't be here. I ran away from a group home when I was 12 years old and was raped and held against my will. And I got out with my life and uh, went on to struggle for many, many years and wander. And I was a single mom, you know, of three kids. By the time I was 24, I have four children now. I went through deep, deep depression. I went through, um, you know, mental health crises like you wouldn't believe uh, that I talk about in my book, Our Voice of Fire. So when I look at where I've come from and what I have fought for uh, to be doing what I'm doing now, that's when I understand um, the magnitude you know, of this. And I'm so grateful, but I'm also grateful for everything that I have come through because I do not think that I would be as powerful as a storyteller and be able to connect with the people whose stories that I am bringing to the forefront if I also wasn't a survivor and a fighter because the majority of the people are also survivors. They are living through crises And so I think that those experiences help equip me uh, to be able to have the the experience as well as the, you know, the heart and that care and the drive to do this. Well, Brandy, uh, like I'm always 
heartbroken when I hear the stories of what our people have gone through, you know, especially our women and girls. And, and in your case, I, I can't even imagine. Um, and, you know, everything that I've seen you do speaks volumes about not just being a survivor, but being a warrior and, you know, taking that battle on to fight for other people, to be an activist, to stick up for other people, to share their stories. Because in those stories, there is pain, but there's so much strength. You know, you see about all of the people who have fought so hard to live another day, you know, yes. to, to raise their kids, to be a part of their communities, to be activists, whatever it is that they're doing. It's such a strong warrior spirit. And, you know, it's, it's one thing, like if you look at everything that you've done and you imagine that you didn't have any of that pain or trauma in your past and you think, wow, that's incredible. But to know the additional barriers, the additional challenges, that's it just makes it so much more phenomenal. And the thing that one of the reasons why I want people to come on this Warrior Life podcast with stories like yours is because it shows our youth mm. that there is not one path to everything that, you know, <sighs> whether you have a formal education or not, you can do the things you want to do, whether or not you've had difficulties, you know, you can with help and support, go on and do what you want to do so that we can look at people, our people as heroes and not say that, Oh, the standard has to be some kind of unrealistic perfection where, Oh, that person must've never struggled in their life that you can, mm. you can still do that. And you're such an inspiration for me in that way, Brandy. And I just, you must hear that so much from people. I know like social media is a mixed bag of love, people who love and people who hate, but you must, you must get that response from people about how you spoke to their story. Well, definitely just a side note. I don't know if you can see this, but I have warrior in pre-syllabic Increase I got that um, a couple of years ago to remind me when, when I'm doing these, this work and on the ground, if I ever feel afraid or discouraged to remind myself that I am that warrior and you I'm on the warrior, warrior, warrior podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, I mean, this work is, um, difficult in, in every way, but it's, rewarding and I consider this work justice work. I consider it human rights work. Um and I I um create relationships with um everybody. Uh I think that that is one of the most important aspects of being a journalist, being a storyteller that maybe they don't emphasize enough in the traditional, you know, uh schools where they teach, uh, how, you know, on journalism, I think that, um, you know, you need to be able to, uh, build relationships to connect with people and, um, create that rapport, but also to maintain that, um, because we're, we're dealing with human beings, we're dealing with human lives. And in my case, the type of stories that I tell many of these stories are, filled with trauma, filled with injustice, but also inspiration. But this is something that um, you have to take care to do it in, you know, some people call it trauma informed, um, to be able to um, follow up and make sure that these people have the supports and resources that they have or, or that they're doing okay, right? But as far as 
you know, people being inspired by me and my work. I think um, it's been more recently that I have encountered that. And I think it might have to do with the release of my book and sharing my story more publicly. I have shared it in the past uh, with APTN um, when the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls was first coming out is when the first time that I spoke publicly about my own experience, but that kind of fell under the radar at the time. And then a couple of years ago, I was compelled to write about it. Uh, and I wrote for the, the Guardian, which is an international publication. Um, and that reached a lot of people. And that along with encouragement from one of my mentors really, um, propelled the process to me writing our voice of fire and it it only came out in august august 2nd and it hit number one in canada within a couple of weeks which was mind-blowing like you know you think that you have a story to tell and you pray that it reaches people and that it does good but i was just blown away at the response but um the people that are reaching out to me now um you know, sharing that they are inspired, thanking me, sharing similar, you know, stories that and, and, and circumstances that they've overcome. You know, that's been ha happening as of recently. And it's almost see, it's almost seemed to um, just um, coincide. The release of my book has come to coincide with all of, you know, some of these major awards that that I've won even in the past couple of months and it's just uh it's just um I'm so thankful for it because I I worked for so many years and you you would know that for so long our stories uh really weren't um you know taken seriously or mainstream would often you know not pick them up and and so that's why i i wanted to bring him to start bringing them to international audiences um and so it's just so rewarding and i say like finally like finally you know this work is starting to pay off not for myself but for the people for the you know for the aunties for the sisters for the uncles for the cookums for everybody um, you know, for for these stories, for this truth telling and for this justice to get, you know, for this to get out to the world. Well, that's incredible. Uh, our, vo our voice of fire has been all over social media. Everybody is raving about it. But the important thing for people to understand who, I mean, the maybe the two people who haven't followed you on social media is that this your book is in addition to all of your other awards that you've been involved in. So you're not just an author of this incredibly powerful memoir, but you've also won awards for other things. Uh, for example, the most recent one is the Canadian Association, or sorry, the first one, Canadian Association of Journalists Human Rights Reporting Award. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, what was that for? So that was um, a project that I did with the CBC when I was at CBC Indigenous. And it was a series that we worked on tracking the uh, Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission, um, you know, uh, calls to action. So I had written um, a feature on, you know, racism in you know, rural uh, communities, specifically uh, in North Central Alberta. And so that feature, you know, helped 
you know, contribute to this whole series. And uh, we won the, the Human Rights uh, Reporting Award, which was awesome. Yeah, I mean, especially in that it's in relation to human rights, you know, because mm -hmm. human rights are just so fundamental. It's worldwide. It applies to everybody. It's something that's super powerful. Now, something else I saw just more recently on Twitter was this, the Native American Journalist Association. You didn't mm -hmm. just win one award. You won award for best feature story and best column. Can you tell us a little bit about those two? Yes. Yeah, so um, this was incredible to experience. I was able to travel to um, to Phoenix, Arizona, you know, for the conference of NAJA, which is Native American Journalists Association, and uh, to accept these awards. Um, so the best feature story category that I won was um, a feature that I had done with Al Jazeera English um, regarding um, the the bones of our children um, being found who had attended uh, residential schools. And um, I had traveled to Maryville, Saskatchewan and met with a survivor there as well as uh, to Calgary, who uh, another survivor who was also, um, who had also attended Maryville and um, just a very um, horrifying account I mean, I've been telling these stories for many years and of residential school survivors, but it just never gets easier, you know. And um, these, this, this, this man, um, Barry, one of the survivors, he was forced to um, dig a grave for one of his uh, classmates when he was a young boy by a priest, and I uh, was there on the ground, and he was showing me where that happened. And um, uh, another survivor from Calgary, uh, Rosalind, she, uh, her cousin, her little cousin died in the bed next to her at residential school. And so these are living, tangible testimonies of these horrors of this genocide. And um, this story was, uh, you know, distributed to an international audience. And that was the story uh, that won for that. And for the best column, I won for my writing that I do for the Toronto Star. I haven't been doing it as of late because I've been so busy. But I was really grateful for that award as well because I have received a ton of backlash specifically from that column. Um, I, I have even received death threats um, for the subjects that I write about in regards to inequality and racism. So that meant a lot to me and I'm really proud. And, and the awards, I don't know if you can see them, but one of them is behind me um, in that little plaque and then one's just above. So I, I'm really thankful for that. These are not easy stories either. So this isn't just a matter of typing up something clever about a key issue in politics or something. These are life and death stories. These are about trauma and pain. It's about heartache and loss. And so not only are you writing about all of that by the people who've experienced it, but you've experienced it yourself. And so writing these stories must also take a little bit of a toll on you as well every time, doesn't it? Oh, yes, absolutely. And like my cookum, um, 
was a residential school survivor at the Uville Residential School uh, in St. Albert, not too far from here. Um, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't get easier. Like, even when I traveled to Rome um, at the end of March, beginning of April to cover these uh, historic meetings that Pope Francis held with indigenous delegates and survivors. Like I, I had a few couple few months to prep for that. And I thought that I would be able to handle it. And like, as soon as I stepped off the plane in Rome, like there was this burden, this heaviness that fell over me. And I mean, we were in the land of the colonizers, right? Like where it was born in Rome. And um, so that week was just a storm. And so I was trying to focus on working and doing all that, but I would, I would go back to my hotel room and cry and cry like for hours and just trying to make it through. And then on the Friday of when we were in Rome, after the Pope apologized, like we, nobody was expecting that to happen there because uh, they, you know, the delegates had invited the Pope to come to indigenous lands to apologize. And so it kind of took people off guard, but um, I have to say, you know, a lot, there's a lot of different controversy around the apology. People have a lot of different mixed feelings, but from what I experienced when I was there after going through that storm that I felt that spiritual, that internal, you know, emotional and physical storm that, um, it had been raining for like a couple of days straight in Rome. And when that apology happened, when those words came out, um, I was watching from the Vatican press room and I ran out to the St. Peter's square. Some of the delegates were coming out to address the media and this, the clouds literally parted onto St. Peter's square and the sun was shining down in that area. And, and one of the chiefs, you know, made a comment about it, about how that, you know, that that was a significant moment. And so um, it was a beautiful thing to, to, to witness. I, I ended up running over to a different area of St. Peter's Square. I left the scrum. I heard drums and singing in the distance and there were dancers and singers and uh, Dr. Uh, Wilton Littlechild got out of his walker and started dancing around. And it was a really beautiful, sacred moment. And so I felt a lot lift at that moment off my shoulders. Um, but yeah, it's very difficult no matter what situation I go into. But I find that um, I will carry that heaviness of everything. And then when I either write the story or it gets broadcasted in whichever form that there is a release that comes with that when it gets out there. And so that, that helps not to say that it totally goes away because Pam, mm -hmm. I tell you um, a couple of years ago, I had to start bringing sleeping pills with me on the road because it would be so crazy going into different situations with, um, land defenders and police or reporting on murders and different things that I would experience massive nightmares and anxiety. So I had to take sleeping pills, but you know, thank God I, you know, I, I haven't had to do that as of uh, recent, but it, it is a balance and it, yeah, it, it's, it's hard work. Like this is human rights work. It's not, you're not just, uh, you know, going in with a, a microphone, doing a little TV hit and walking mm -hmm. out of there. I'm invested in this stuff, you know, from, you know, from the inside out. Well, exactly. And I think that's what's different 
about Indigenous peoples, whether they're Indigenous academics or journalists or any of it, we're not like from the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. We're actually talking about the stories and the lived experiences of ourselves, our family members, other people. And so it's it's bound to to carry that with it. And you can really tell in your reporting because I've never seen you act in a way that sensationalizes anything or the other extreme trivializes it, acts like it's, you know, no big deal. And I think that's that's the balance. That's like someone who really knows what trauma is, what pain is, and how to actually tell these stories in a respectful, heartfelt, mm. and sensitive way. And and you can really tell that, you know, which is different than how, well, I don't have to tell you how the media has portrayed our stories and our voices for, for decades and decades. And I think that's that's what's resonating so much mm. with people also, and that you're so real. You're literally <laughs> totally grassroots. It's like just talking to your sister or brother as opposed to, you know how sometimes in journalism, it, it just sounds very... Scripted or... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robotic. How do you do do that? Do you just decide to go with the process? Well, well, the thing is, Pam, like I didn't, I learned as I went, I learned as, you know, on the ground. um, And I learned just by, um, you know, connecting with people. I mean, I had an ability to write. I had an ability to be a storyteller and stuff. But as far as the, you know, the, the, the required process that, you know, they, they say, you know, that it should be done. I, I just went and did it. And, um, you know, I've heard that from people before, like they'll say, Oh, well, you're just so like authentic and real. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not like going out of my way to try to be like, I'm just doing this work. And, and, but, but I think that you're right. I think because uh, I go about this organically, that 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 resonates with people. I I definitely uh, you know see that. Yeah, totally. And you know, I I think about it like when APTN first came on the mm. air, and I first started watching their news broadcasts, and whoever was doing it, like way back in the day, sometimes they would stumble over their words, or sometimes they would make a mistake, or sometimes they would smile or giggle on the air, and I was like. Yeah, that's how news should be. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. Why would you take 20 takes out of it? Because it was like, oh yeah, that's that's how we do it too. Everyone makes mistakes. It just seemed more yeah. real and more realistic of real life. And that's what I like about how you are. You know, mm-hmm. you're not doing it to be some, you know, massive social media influencer, <laughs> you know, to sell, I don't know, hair care products or something, not, <laughs> not to put anyone down for that. Cause you know, we all got to represent in different ways, but you know, you're, re- you're really respectful about all of this and which is probably why you've won other awards and this most incredible rare mm-hmm. award, very prestigious. I don't even know the whole background of it, but I know when I hear it, that it's pretty significant. And so could you tell us a little bit about your Edward R. Morrow Award? Because, wow, Brandy. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, yeah, this is, again, stunning. I didn't even know that, uh, you know, I, this had, that this series that I wrote had been submitted. So uh, I had uh, pitched a series on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls 
the highway of tears and the extraction industry. I'd been, I'd been pitching it for about a year before Al Jazeera English finally invested in it. And so I, along with my friend uh, and photojournalist, uh, She's award-winning. Uh, her name's Amber Bracken. Um, she came and did the photography on it. Um, but I produced a six-part major series uh, on on this subject, and it, it Al Jazeera submitted it, you know, for these for these awards. And I found out in October, and I didn't even know about these awards or what they were. But um, it's one of the most prestigious awards in the world, if not the most prestigious that uh, you can win. Um, these awards are based out of Washington and they're having an awards ceremony in New York in October. And I'm waiting to see if I am going to be able to go to accept this award in person. But why I was so excited again to receive this because I've fought and we have fought for so long for these stories to hit the mainstream. It's why I left APTN. It's why I left my cushy salary job at CBC Indigenous because I was sick of the status quo. I was sick of feeling like I was in a box. I wanted to shout these stories to the world because there was so much apathy and indifference here in this country. And so it's paid off. And when I get this international award, when they've had thousands of entries from all around the world to be able to get this for our people, for these stories. Like I, 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 I'm just so proud, so thankful and excited about, uh, you know, where we can take, you know, this work going forward. Well, and, and the thing about this award is it really shows the strength of independence, the strength of being able to report and tell stories and inform and educate people without all of the corporate restrictions mm -hmm. that are around organized news media. And that's not to kick them all down. You know, they, they are what they are, but that it's the most powerful stuff seems to come from independent voices like yours where you know no one's covering this no mm -hmm. one's telling the real stories no one's putting so much focus and effort into it and so this award to me not only celebrates the fact that they were powerful and impactful stories that people need to hear and they are incredibly well done but also the celebration of your voice and your independence mm -hmm. and you're just like no I'm I'm doing it this way and the educating of people, keeping yeah. books in the media, things that just weren't getting enough attention. And so like on all those counts, it's so it's so much more than just an award. It's like a recognition yeah. of how powerful your voice is uh, and and how you're brave enough to go and be independent. Because, you know, many people when they're in journalism or academia or, you know, anything else, you're so worried about being able to put food on the table. Yeah. That you're yeah. like, okay, I'm going to have to do it according to this way, to these prescriptions, because that's, I have to make my way. But you're like, no, these, this is important. I got to leave and tell these stories. Yeah. Like, yeah. You must, you must see a huge difference. It, 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 it was like risky. And like when I did make that decision to leave the CBC Indigenous, um, I did have a sec setback. I had a huge financial setback. Uh, I had to, you know, leave my apartment and move in with my dad for a little bit. But I'm so grateful for that setback 
because less than six months later, I started writing my first piece for Al Jazeera English and getting these stories out internationally and then followed the New York Times and then followed National Geographic and then followed The Guardian and the things that I'm doing now, you know, it's just incredible. So I'm so glad that I took that risk. Right. And yes, it's not for everybody, but I felt compelled to mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just, um, you know, I felt on fire, just like my book. It's so cliche, <laughs> you know, our, our voice on fire, you know, our voice of fire, because uh, it's just so important to me. And when when it's that burning inside of you, when it's that purpose, like you, you, you will not be settled or satisfied, mm -hmm. you know, unless you pursue that in my own experience. And so, um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, what I love about that is, you know, like everyone's journey is different and everyone's situation is different at different times. You know what someone can do in one yeah. minute, someone else will have to do later, but your risk, um, actually led to keeping these important issues in the media longer, high profile, all over the world. And that in and of itself puts that kind of indirect pressure on governments and yeah. agencies and, and Canadians and Americans and everyone else to act. And that's the most important thing. Yes. To me, it never seemed like you're telling stories for the sake of it. It's mm. always also a form of activism in a way, like you're pushing to keep what's happening alive. Yeah. yeah, well, exactly. Like, 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 like I say, this is human rights work. There are mm -hmm. human indigenous environmental uh, violations, as you know, that are continually going on in Canada and around the world. And so I use uh, this medium as a journalist, which I've worked up to have a very powerful platform. The media is a very powerful, uh, you know, um, influence in, in our world, you know, and so this is the medium that I'm using to help bring some sort of justice, you know, and awareness and truth, you know, to these different situations. And people say, you know, journalists, um, you know, or should be neutral and this and that, but I am not neutral when it comes to the violations of human rights. Mm -hmm. So and, and, <laughs> yeah, like who is neutral when they say like you, Oh, you need to be objective and neutral and you know, all that stuff. It's like, Oh, you mean I need to think and report like you have done for hundreds of years. Yeah, exactly. but, yeah not like us. Well, and the whole human rights bit, it, that's also been recognized, your work with human rights, mm -hmm. because as I understand it, you no. also had two honorable mentions for Amnesty Canada Media Awards. Like, tell us what that's all about. Uh, so I just found that out yesterday and oh, I got a, I got a, a I, I have to actually look up which, which, one. <laughs> but you I think I, first, I actually think they were related. One of them again was for the uh, residential schools piece, uh, that specific piece from Al Jazeera, even though I've done several different pieces, it was that one on the burials and then another one for national geographic on the burials. So I, I believe it was those, but from what I understand, it's significant to receive honorable mentions. Cause I didn't really know what that meant. But apparently they do not always uh, name or, or provide honorable mentions. And there is only one winner in each category. So they put one honorable mention. Uh, and, or sorry, so I got two. And so you know what? I'm going to take that because these are amnesty awards. 
the Edward Moore Award, this award, that that is like um, like fuel that is like um, tools that I can use to take this work further. Um, you know, and so I'm, that's, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful. It's, it's, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, and, and Amnesty International just does such important work and they partner with indigenous activists, indigenous mm. lawyers, indigenous organizations. They, you know, try to lift the voices. So it's not just them always doing it. So that that's really significant. I mean, Amnesty International, as you know, does this human rights work all over the world. So good on you. And good on them for actually recognizing you. But Mm -hmm. um, now we come to probably my favorite part about your new book, because for anyone who hasn't seen it, Our Voice of Fire, a memoir of a warrior rising, uh, published by House of Anansi. And that's just recent, right? Like, isn't that just this year? August, August 2nd, it was released. Oh, wow. So tell us, <laughs> how did this book come about? Because as a, you know, a book nerd myself, I'm always interested in the backstory, how a book came about. Is this something you'd always wanted to do? Did it come mm. about because of something specific? Did someone inspire you? Like, what's the backstory? Yeah. So I had first, like I said earlier, shared my story of survival with APTN uh, in 2016 and then with The Guardian a couple of years ago. But my former news director at APTN uh, News, who then went on to become a mentor of mine and friend, Karen Pugliese, and she's just a powerhouse of an Algonquin woman and and journalist, um, media girl. She had been like... um, just putting in words over the years to me and, and saying, you need to write a book. You should write a book. But I did never, like, I didn't take her seriously. And I kind of just laughed her off. Cause I was like, well, what do I have to offer? You know? And then um, I started taking it seriously a couple of years ago. And I thought, you know what, you know, yes, I have this platform now and people tell me their intimate stories all the time in their personal stories and their stories helped provide truth. They helped provide inspiration. Uh, And so because of the crisis that we have of our missing and murdered women and um, these other, you know, uh, injustices, the, the residential school system and all of these effects of the violence of colonization that is still going on today. I just felt compelled like to, to write it. So I took her seriously. I wrote a couple chapters. I found a book agent. They loved it. They helped me prepare uh, a proposal. And, you know, that's when I signed with House of Anansi and it really came together really quickly. Um, that's basically, you know, how it started. <laughs> wow. Well, that's that's exciting when you know that people in the background, you know, and that's the other thing why I like the backstory, because sometimes it's people who are mentoring. Some people were giving you a nudge when you didn't think, you know, that maybe you could. And there's always like important people in our lives. Sometimes they're in our lives forever. Sometimes they're just a little bit. You never know when you're going to meet them. But look at Karen, you know, just that little Mm -hmm. tiny bit of, you know, nudge forward. Obviously, you had to write the book. And so now it's just come out. Mm -hmm. What's the what's the sort of content in the book for anyone who hasn't seen it yet? 
Yeah, so it is a very difficult read. Um, so it chronicles my story of my life growing up in and out of the foster care system, um, being a, a rape survivor as a child and overcoming a lot of adversity. But then it it, it um, goes on to um, chronicle my rise to this journalist for justice. So it ends up being very inspirational. I do talk about, um, you know, some of my experiences on the ground and some of the stories uh, that I cover as well. Uh, I was wondering, I, I could read a quick little passage passage to you that I that I find that's inspirational. How do you yes. feel about that? Yes, please. Oh my <laughs> gosh. I never okay. want to ask in case people don't want to give any spoilers, but yes, please. So this little story is something that I experienced last summer, 2021, after I had been covering the repatriation of Lakota children that had passed away after being stolen and taken to the Carlisle Indian boarding school, thousands of miles from their homelands. They were taken to Pennsylvania. So I covered the repatriation of their remains back to the Lakota, uh, to the Rosebud Sioux Nation, where they held a beautiful uh, burial, tr traditional burial uh, ceremony for them. Um, I was covering that with National Geographic, but uh, during, uh, during my time there after that week, um, I had the opportunity uh, to go to a ranch there. And so I will read about that experience here. During my visit, I was given the opportunity to fulfill another one of my lifelong dreams, horseback riding on those beautiful wild lands. I visited a ranch that specialized in working with people who have endured trauma, survivors of violence, offenders, troubled youth, and paired them with formerly abused horses. Gray Greg Cloud, our guide and manager of the program, asked me if I wanted to do a traditional spirit connecting ceremony with the horses. I must admit I was a bit nervous because I didn't know what it entailed. But something was pulling on my spirit, so I agreed. He led seven horses into the round paddock and then directed me to stand in the middle with him. You just need to wait here, Greg explained. The horse will choose you. Trust the process. A couple of ranch hands encouraged the horses into a gallop. They ran around the perimeter twice in one direction and then twice the other way. I followed them, turning my body in a circle as they thundered around me, their manes flowing, nostrils snorting, and hooves pounding the hard-packed earth. The force of their power vibrated through every cell in my body. Then the horses stopped and the silence was equally deafening. I waited, I waited as I'd been instructed. After a couple of minutes, one of the horses broke from the group and approached me. His red and chestnut coat blazed in the sunlight. He had white socks that showed off his large hooves. I swallowed and stood as still as I could. Trust the process, trust the process, trust the process, I chanted in my mind. The horse stopped in front of me, lowering his head so his liquid brown eyes could meet mine, his ears pricked forward in curiosity. I smelled his hay-sweetened breath as he huffed a greeting. That socks, Greg said, approaching the two of us. Former rodeo horse. 
he used to be tied up and abused something terrible by his former owner. Sox's ears flicked backwards at the sound of Greg's approach, but he kept his gaze on me. Sox. He usually chooses leaders, said Greg, stepping to Sox's side and stroking his black mane. But they don't know their leaders yet. I felt something catch at my throat. That's the thing, Greg continued. The horses always choose the rider who is most like them. Sox is powerful, but he doesn't always know it. That abuse went deep. But you know, when he gets outside the fences here and into the pasture, he realizes he's free. And he realizes he's boundless. That's a sight to see. The tears broke like a dam. That was me, all right. For so many years, held back by the invisible restraints of former abuse, but I am a leader. I am coming into my own. I need only to step out of these enclosures built by fear, and then I will be truly free to live into the strength and power that I already possess. I touched socks on his whiskery velvet nose and thanked him for his gift. Ready to ride? Greg asked. <laughs> ah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Brandy, that's just that one passage alone. Just, I feel like it signifies everything. Please tell me you are going to do an audio book because it's, it's already out there and it's narrated oh. by me. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I was going to say, and please make sure you use your voice because not only are your words powerful and moving, but you saying them like you can See and feel and hear the passion in your voice. I feel like your title, our voice of fire, just mm. oh, oh my gosh, it's just so perfect. Mm. And and your writing is beautiful. I I can't believe it. I'm gonna get both. <laughs> I have to get the hardcover book or the the hard, you know paperback book, and I have to get the audio book because you you really feel it when you're saying it, you know, you know where it's coming from. And, you know, the, the subtitle there, a, a memoir of a warrior rising, that's just, that just, it's perfect. I mean, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about this book? Uh, it's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, it's a little bit surreal. Like sometimes it's amazing. Like it's amazing to have a book out there. It's a gift. It's something that, that is a, document that will be there you know potentially you know forever as long as this earth endures and so I'm proud and I'm proud for my kids I have four children and uh, they have my my oldest three lived through a lot of the struggles uh and they're all doing incredible now and for them to see all of this happen I'm so proud because I'm showing them I'm showing that next generation within my own that they uh, can do and be, uh, you know, what their heart desires. And then I have a little four-year-old, Alasia, and, uh, you know, um, a whole different experience raising another uh, little girl. Um, but she's able to have me as a mother when I'm not necessarily in survivor mode and, yeah. you know, experience all of this. So that's what I'm really proud of. Um, and again, it's a bit surreal at times. Oh, I wish... 
there's some really exciting things coming up and I want to tell you about them, but I can't tell you on here. No, <laughs> I'll no. tell you, I'll tell you privately after. Okay. <laughs> Because I'm going to say, that's one rule you can't ever do. Say, oh, I know something, but I can't tell you. Okay. How about this for a deal? Is there anything you're working on now that you can tell us about? Yeah. Okay. Oh, gosh. So I'm doing so many different things. So like, um, you know, primarily I, I was a print reporter, but I've worked in, t- in broadcast. I've, I'm doing podcast documentaries now with Canada Land. And so I believe like I want, you know, take, of taking advantage of all the different mediums of, of storytelling and that we should, right? Because people take in stories differently. Some like to hear them, some like to see them, some like to read them. Mm-hmm. So I'm working on two major uh, documentary feature films right now. And um, one of them is around the apology and one of them um, is in pre-production, but it's with a major Hollywood production company. And I'm so excited about it. It's around indigenous rights and uh, gosh, there's things happening with my book and uh, so many, so many things. I'm actually, you know, my heart is always being like on the ground and in the stories. So uh, this evening I'm heading out to Vancouver and I will be in Smithers tomorrow morning to head out to Wet'suwet'en territory. I've been covering that crisis there for a few years now. And um, unfortunately the coastal gas link pipeline company began drooling under their sacred river this week. This is what they have been um, fighting to stop for all these years mm-hmm. that they've, they've endured brutality, violence from police and arrests um, at all, at all different levels. Mm-hmm. So I'm going back on the ground and, and we'll be doing, doing that. Well, that's one of the, the things I really admire most about you because you are doing these big and amazing and important things, but you always prioritize our people on the ground, the people who are dealing with, you know, unmarked graves or trying to protect their families from murder to missing or the Wet'suwet'en land defenders who have been there. And all they're trying to do is protect the waters and the plants and animals like you would think that that would be a no brainer, but your coverage of that, that it's real, it's raw. You get to see what's happening at the time and hopefully motivate Canadians to pressure governments to stop this nonsense. And you make sure that they have a voice too, and you keep it in the media. And I, I think I admire that the most about you, Brandy, of all the things I admire that <laughs> it's so important that you stay so connected. Oh gosh. Well, you know, even when I said, like, when I wrote a book, I said I never want to be be one of those people that, like, writes a book and just does, like, a bunch of book stuff. Like, I, my heart is on the ground. My heart is in these stories. And that's what I want to, you know, continue to do for a long time. Um, so it's such a privilege to do this. Um, and I and I recognize that and, and think about that all the time. Um, and you have to understand that, like, even in this case of the Witsutin, um, this is what they have left. This is what has not been stolen and completely destroyed by, um, you know, colonizers. This is the last of the last that they have. And it's something rare and beautiful that they have because not every nation has this. Some people are in these reservations um, that have been, you know, completely depleted and they have something that is so 
intact and beautiful there. Mm-hmm. And so this is not just indigenous rights. This is human rights. These are situations that will impact all of humanity because the consequences of it are very broad and telling of where we are at as a society. So, yeah, it's extremely, extremely important. It, and it must be even more impactful to you given the history of what the the government has done to Michelle First Nation. Just the complete trying to destroy, extinguish that whole Mm. community, the injustice that continues for all of the people who are rightful members of that First Nation and their age-long struggle to say that what was done to them was wrong and that they, you know, they are as deserving of recognition and reparations uh, and justice as anybody else that has been so negatively impacted by the government. And, you know, my, my heart goes out to you and your family and any of those community members. Cause I know from the time years ago when I was doing my research on indigenous identity and belonging that, you know, this, here's a prime example of the power that the government has to just try to erase people. Mm, Yeah. So for anybody who's not familiar with the Michelle First Nation, so um, our family, uh, our reserve was located just uh, west of Edmonton in the St. Albert and Sturgeon area. And, um, uh, you know, one of my great grandfathers signed an an adhesion to Treaty 6 um, when these, um, lands were given uh, as a reserve to the Michelle people. Our traditional ter- territories extend from that area all the way to Jasper, though. Now, our people, um, you know, were thriving at that time, and the government um, were looking for an example um, for enfranchisement, and they chose uh, the Michelle people. And uh, it was done very corruptly. Uh, There was only a couple of Michelle members that uh, participated in this so-called vote to complete the enfranchisement, but basically the government offered the Michelle in exchange for um, giving you know, up rights and, and full assimilation, that they wouldn't have to send their kids to residential school, that they would be given, uh, you know, proper equipment, tools and everything for farming and different things. And so some members, uh, you know, agreed to that and some didn't. And what happened was the Indian agent at the time came in and ended up scooping up our lands uh, for a very cheap, cheap price exchange and, and selling them um, to, uh, settler farmers. And eventually we were completely enfranchised. Now, um, our, many of our uh, band members did, uh, regain their, uh, treaty rights and status, including my cookum. Um, but our nation as the Michelle is not legally recognized as the Michelle first nation, but we are recognized by the treaty six, uh, you know, uh, first nations as well as, um, you know, other nations. And we have been in, uh, the courts, uh, with the Canadian uh, government for 30 or 40 years now, but, um, it's finally making progress. And I don't really give a crap if Canada doesn't recognize me. I recognize myself as a sovereign Michelle, uh, woman. I, uh, yeah, so that, that's the basics of that. Well, and and I think it's important for people to know because, you know, this podcast is all about, you know, celebrating all of our warriors, 
but it's also about education and information for the purpose of taking action and supporting people and nations where we can. And, you know, just before we sign off, I always ask our, our guests here, is there anything in particular, uh, any call to action that you would make for Canadians to support you and your work or Michelle First Nation or any issue in particular? Wow. You know, I just think that people really need to reckon and understand what is going on on their own backyard. I think that uh, just people are ignorant or apathetic to it, but there are serious human rights violations happening here. And the colonization has not stopped Uh, the effects, um, you know, of all of these systems is still being felt. And so I uh, encourage and challenge people to educate themselves, to reach out and get to know their community members, get to know the Indigenous people around you and learn where you can ally with them to make a dif- to make a difference. Oh, such important advice. You know, it's like, know where you are. Whose land are you on? What are the issues that the local First Nations, Inuit or Métis are facing? What are their calls to action? And what can you do to contribute to those calls of action? You know, instead of sometimes people think they can just come up with their own solutions. It's like, Mm. let Indigenous peoples take the lead and support those calls to action. And and I'm going to say, because Brandy's a little bit too humble here, (laughs) also support Brandy follow all of her work. You can follow her here on Twitter at songstress28. You can follow her on Instagram at Be More in Stories. You can buy her book, uh, Our Voice of Fire, a memoir of a warrior rising. You can do simple things like share, comment, mm. retweet, all of those things so that the algorithms get triggered and everybody will get the benefit of Brandy's voice because she is doing amazing things and that horse was right. You are a leader. You have been a leader. And I'm sure more things are going to come from you. And I'm so glad I have you to look up to, Brandy. Thank <laughs> you so much for being on this podcast. Oh, my gosh, Pam. Like, I can't even believe I'm hearing this from you because I have looked up and admired you and your work for so many years. So I can't even believe that I'm hearing this from you. And I, and I just, I am thankful. So Kazaki Tin, uh, hi, hi. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm blown away. So thank you. Thank you, sister. And thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast, wherever you get podcasts or watches the Warrior Life podcast on my YouTube channel, where you can click on the closed caption and read the closed captions. Thank you for anything you can do to support all Indigenous creators and activists and leaders on the ground. And till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag.